Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? He answered, love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then again, at the Last Supper, he says the same thing, but with a twist, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This time, Jesus replaced your neighbor with one another. This new love that Christ commands of us goes much deeper than the Old Testament commandment he was quoting in Matthew. The people we have been commanded to love has expanded beyond our neighborhoods to include, well, everyone. And this includes people who might make this commandment a bit difficult, like that confrontational coworker who just seems impossible to get along with, or your in-laws who've never treated you like a part of the family, or maybe the person you just met who you don't even know and really need some help. You see, Jesus knew his physical time on earth was nearing an end. So in this new take on the old commandment, Jesus also made another change. The words, as yourself, became, as I have loved you. Wow, that's a tough act to follow. Christ's sacrificial life provides a clear and concrete example of real and true love. And he put this love on display on a daily basis with his disciples. He was patient with them, speaking kindly and showing great concern for their welfare. He instructed, counseled, and comforted them, prayed with them and for them. He admonished them for wrongdoing and yet compassionately bore with their failings. And most of all, he gave his life, dying so that they and we might live. According to Jesus, this is how others will know that you are one of his followers, not because you have a shirt or a bumper sticker that says so, not because we announce it from a stage or a blog or a status update, but because they look at you, at how you live, the things you do and say, and they see Jesus. They see love. This weekend, my wife and I got to host a sweet young couple all the way from Texas. They were spending time with us to see whether or not God is calling them to move here to the city to join our church plant team. They've only been married for about a year, and so they're still in that super lovey-dovey phase all the time. It was disgusting. Um, I'm just kidding. It was really beautiful, and uh, it just reminded me what it feels like to be in that first young love. This past weekend, I was doing some traveling. I actually got to go to Texas, and I was speaking at a conference. I wasn't here with you guys, so I'm so happy to be back with all of you and grateful for all of those who are watching on the live stream today. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Emma, among others. Um, But it's so happy to be back. But when I was on the plane ride back from Texas, I pulled out a notebook, and I did something I haven't done in a really long time, tragically. I should do it more often. I actually wrote a love note to my wife. And as I was writing, I was just feeling like all of these old feelings coming back. And I was thinking about what was the moment in time when I knew that I was falling in love? 
and I can pinpoint it. My wife and I met doing theater, and for three years, we were just friends. We were the will-they, won't-they couple. But what was so great about that is we got to really know each other and develop a relationship without the pressure of all this expectation. So through this three years, like I didn't know it was happening, but our lives were kind of being knitted together, and I was learning who this person truly was, and I was allowing her to see who I really was, and it was this crazy time. Andrea always loved to be more of the dancer in the background when we did plays. I like to stand still on stage and talk because I'm not, as you say, coordinated. Um, but there was one time she got cast in the lead role and she had a solo. And she was kind of nervous about it, so she didn't want me to go see her during rehearsal, but I snuck in anyway. And I just remember sitting there in like the third row and she's standing on stage, this girl who I just knew everything about. And the lights are just like, shining on her it's like glistening in her beautiful black hair in her beautiful brown eyes and she is singing this soulful song like from her heart and it hit me i'm in trouble like i'm head over heels so we didn't start dating right away but a few months later in florida i asked her to be my girlfriend and uh, we didn't want to rush saying those three magic words i love you because they mean a lot like there's a lot of pressure so we started dating in florida and we didn't meet back up for three whole days because we were going back to school in virginia and for those whole three days we found every other creative way to express our feelings to each other we were like i deeply value and appreciate you you are a, a great spectacular human being and so finally, on a moonlit night, we met in downtown Lynchburg, Virginia, where we were going to school. And I took her to this beautiful historic place called the Monument Terrace, just this gorgeous big uh, five-story staircase in the middle of downtown. And right there on one of the landings, I was like, Andrea, I have to tell you something. She's like, what? And I was like, I love you. She's like, I love you too. And it was awkward and beautiful. So from then on, it's been this great love story. Uh, the scripture teaches us about what it looks like to recapture our first love. And it begins to show us that love is supposed to be joyful. It's something that we feel, but I've also, after 10 years of marriage, know that love is also sacrificial and purposeful and practical. Sometimes love is writing a love note, expressing your feelings and bringing a bouquet of flowers. And then sometimes love is holding your big, chunky one-year-old and wiping snot off his face so that my wife can pack up her bag before she leaves church. Love makes us do things. Love leads us to action, and love is truly, truly beautiful. When it comes to doing what we're doing here as a church plant in downtown Portland, often referred to as the least religious city in America, uh, sometimes we need to make sure that not only we're giving the right answers, but more importantly, we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions. And today, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what are the questions that we should be asking that will determine our future and our lives. Throughout the month of January, we've been in a series very simply titled Vision. Vision is the ability to see what has not happened yet, to peer beyond the horizon. And when you put vision into action, you just might see change. And one thing I've come to realize about change is that almost everybody wants to see it but almost nobody feels ready to make changes, at least not until they start asking the right questions. <laughs> when it comes back to true love, I would always tell couples when I premarital counsel them, you don't just ask the question, uh, do you think this person's attractive or do you wanna be seen with them? You need to ask real practical questions like, are you ready to be on a health insurance plan with them? Like really think this through and count the cost. Same thing with a church. 
It's one thing to think about what could happen here, to dream about the future, but if we really want to see something happen, it's going to take changes, and not just in the people's lives who work here throughout the week, but in all of our lives. So throughout this series, we begin talking about some of these changes that we would like to see. Some of you have heard them. Some of you, this is new and scary. But really, we are putting some dates on the calendar and beginning to trust and ask God for them. One of the dates we put on the calendar is September 2019. By September 2019, we would love to be occupying a new space with a little bit more room, a little bit more kids space. We're so glad you're here in the 11 o'clock service because in our 9 o'clock service, our kids' room is just spilling over with life and humanity. And if we're going to continue to grow and reach families with kids and have a view to the next generation, we need some new space. It's also been traditionally hard to keep and maintain momentum in this space because when our lobby fills up and our uh, just activity gets so heightened here, it can become really crowded. So that's why we launched two services, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like we need both, just the way people move around the space. We need some more space. And so to the glory of God, we put out a call to some partners this past year, and we asked people to give one-time gifts for year-end giving. And because of the faithfulness of God and the generosity of people, we've already met our space budget goal for 2019. So now we're just looking for the right space and the right time to sign a lease. And we are trusting God for that process. But we believe that ministry is not just a building. Like buildings are where people come and where, you know, lives hear the gospel and some lives are changed, but a building is not really what it's all about. So I'll tell you what we really want to see. We have a 2020 vision that by February 2020, we are praying that God would allow us to have nine vibrant life groups. This would mean that we have 15 people perhaps in each group that are drawing closer to Jesus, that are being invited to follow and tell and grow and multiply, that are learning how to open up and share these relational aspects of our faith. And this comes from like um, asking some right questions. Like when we first moved here, we, uh, people would tell me, Aaron, man, you're going to have a hard time in Portland. Church plants fail there all of the time. From the time you get there, it's a ticking clock. And uh, we only had like two optimistic people in our life. And we said, well, if we're going to fail, we're going to do it interestingly. And we're going to do it by asking a lot of questions. We're not so concerned with the what. We want to know the why. And uh, I've shared with you that we were trained recently by... Um, a missionary to Haiti who said, if you want to reach your community, here's the question you ask. What does good news look like in your community? We began to think a lot about that. We began to notice some things in Portland, like the high history of isolationism and the high degrees of mental health. We also began to study the correlation between poor mental health and poor relational formation. We also saw the flip side as we began studying, like behavioral research studies, that better mental health leads to better relationships and better relationships improves mental health. And so we began to come up with this hypothesis that we think good news in Portland looks like this, making and keeping relational promises. And so we want to do that through the context of these life groups. That's why it's powerful. We also know that it takes work. So from this whole idea is where we formed our new mission statement. Like what are we actually going to do day in and day out as a church? And here it is, building families of everyday missionaries seeking to disciple the city. 
I love this terminology, everyday missionary, and I hope you like it too, because you're going to hear it a lot. Like, we're not just going to say it, we're actually going to do the hard work to try to become this. And I'm going to tell you that there's parts of this that will be fun. There might be parts that are hard, and that's good too. We have a vision that we want to see accomplished here. So we have a mission, we know what we're going to do. What do we really want to see? Here's what we want to see. We want to be part of pioneering a holistic disciple-making movement. We read all of the time that the 21st century church is in transition, that if people are going to continue forward in this faith that we hold so dear and treasure, then some big changes are happening all around us, uh, structural changes, the way finances are handled, the way teams are built, the way people occupy spaces, like all of these exciting changes are happening. And we want to be part of that conversation in a God-honoring way. But really, the purpose is this, that disciples would be made, that people would come alive in Jesus, and they would become disciple-making disciples. We think that sounds so glorious. And so here's what we're praying for, this big vision that we would be part of planting 10 churches in 10 years. I'm telling you, it scares me to say that. You're like, how are we going to do that? We can barely plant one church as it is. I tell you, it will be impossible unless some amazing things happen. But why try unless we're trying to see amazing things? You asked me, Aaron, what do you really think this will take? Like, what's it going to take? Is it, is it going to take, like, the right gimmick, the right method? No, I think it'll be something much, 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 much deeper than that. And I've introduced this before, but I want to remind you all, for the next nine months, we're focusing wholeheartedly on three key principles. The first is this. If we're going to pioneer a holistic disciple-making movement, we're gonna to have to have really engaged leaders. I believe that every great movement rises and falls in the hearts of the leader and the leaders. And I am inviting our church to view themselves in a different way. And here's the kind of leaders that we're gonna need. We're not just gonna need leaders who know their job title and their responsibilities, like a structural activity-based identity of leadership. No, 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 no. We're gonna need leaders that identify as those everyday missionaries. And I love that term. Let me tell you why. Because when I grew up thinking about missions, I would think about destinations. I went on a mission trip to the Bahamas. By the way, if you're going to go on a mission trip, just remember the Bahamas need Jesus and they have sunshine. Um, But I would think like, man, I live my everyday life, kind of doing what I want to do, making it through. And then for one week a year, I'll sign up and get on a plane and go overseas and I'll paint walls and hand out tracts and tell people about Jesus and feed the hungry. And then I come back home and I show everybody the pictures of what it looked like to live on mission. As an everyday missionary, we realize that mission is key to our identity. And that identity takes place every day. What about the day you wake up grumpy? Yeah, that day too. And if we're going to do that, guess what? We can't do it alone. We will need Jesus. Why would we want to start a movement? Why would we want to plant a church unless we couldn't do it without him as the source? There's a second thing that we need. We need exciting momentum. I think this is key to any new work, any new organization, and especially any new church plant. And I'll tell you that in the history of our church, we've been decent at generating momentum. We can't, like, that's the one thing that we've kind of known how to do. But without the two in place, momentum can come and go. So around September 2019, we will be praying and working and doing cool activities and outreach events, building that momentum. But it's all leading to the third, which is our amazing discipleship pathway. 
And this is where you get involved. Like, this is really fun to put on a screen, but it really comes down to a personal question. Like, where are you with Jesus? And how do we help you take your next step? And how do we build a church that's organized around that idea? Where are you with Jesus? Not where we think you should be. Like, where are you actually? What questions do you have? Do you have a safe place to ask them? What about, like, hurts and pains in your life? Do you have a safe place to be broken? What about relational sharing of the gospel? Like, do you have believers that you can share your faith with and they can share their faith with you? Are you being trained and commissioned and empowered to consider where you live, work, and play as a place where the light of Christ can shine through you? Like, whatever your next step is, how can we meet you there and help you take your next one? And we believe that when we approach life and ministry like that, then Jesus does amazing things. But I'm just going to be honest with you. Is it okay if the preacher's honest sometimes? Some of you are like, no, please just tell us what we'd like to hear. Um, if I'm going to be honest with you, just saying all of this out loud is overwhelming to me. And I start asking the wrong questions sometimes. I want to point out some of the wrong questions that I want to lead us away from. And in just a moment, help us go back to the one we really should be asking. But I also want to announce something. I think we've done this relationally with many people, but I want to announce it publicly for the first time that we're making our most radical shift yet as a church. And I might say it and you're like, that's no big deal. But for me, it was like so much prayer and seeking so much counsel. So here's what we're going to do. We currently have two services, 9 a.m. and 11. We are going to unlaunch our 9 a.m. service for a season. We are going to maintain this 11 o'clock service as a place where publicly anybody can come in and hear the gospel and sing songs and worship the Lord. This will also be like a prayer chapel. We're going to take an intentional focus on teaching people how to connect with God in a personal, prayerful way. And so I want to invite you. Like, I think that's going to be an awesome time. But here's what we're going to do at the 9 a.m. service. We've realized we cannot do any of this unless we take a season of time to build leaders, until we build everyday missionaries seeking to disciple the city. So we kind of put out the sound and the call to some people who've been attending church here for a regular amount of time, and we invited folks to join us next weekend for what we're calling Leader Retreat at Cannon Beach. And I was praying, man, Lord, would you please allow 30 people to sign up? Um, I'm thinking if 20 come, that'll be awesome. Right now, to date, we have 50 adults registered. That speaks so much to the strength and future of our church. If you're just hearing about this for the first time, and you're like, I want to go. Okay, let's go. Let's get you signed up. During this weekend, we're just going to connect with God. We're going to connect with each other. And we're going to stir up some of the right questions in our hearts. And for the next few months, Sundays at 9 a.m., we're going to start helping you answer these questions. So if you come confused, great. If you came not confused, we wouldn't know what to do with you. So come with questions, and 9 a.m. is for you. But this is an application-only experience. So if you apply, you're going to get approved. But we want to help people walk through the process of understanding like what this identity looks like. And it's a discipling moment for us to walk with you, to help you understand there's a difference between carrying the work of the ministry and the weight of the ministry. And if we're going to be at a strong church in downtown Portland, we have to do both. And that's what this experience is about. I don't want you to consider your worth like based on which you sign up for. Because we believe there's some people who want to do 9 a.m. But man, God is really calling you and leading you to 11 a.m. right now. Just to experience and grow and heal. We're celebrating that. Like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to love 11 a.m. 
We also believe some people are going to go to both because they want to get leadership development and still be in a place where new people are coming in every single week and being able to celebrate that with them. I want you guys to pray for us because this is such an exciting time. And again, as I announce this, I've explained this like I feel like 5,000 times in the past few months, and I'm getting worn out. And like I said, I started to ask some of the questions you're probably asking right now, and maybe they're the wrong ones. Let me show and just be honest with you. Here's some of the questions I started asking. Am I really ready for this? Am I really ready for this? I began asking this question way back dozens of months ago before God was first calling us to move to Portland, Oregon. And to be honest with you, when I started to ask this question, like we knew in our heart of hearts Jesus was calling us here. But when I started to say, am I ready for this? My answer was always no. No, I don't feel ready to sell my house. No, I don't feel ready to leave my family. No, I don't feel ready to restart community 3,000 miles away. No, I don't feel ready to leave a job where I kind of know what I'm doing and it's starting to go well. No, I don't feel ready for that. Andrea and I were out here on a vision trip house hunting and like every night we go back to the hotel and Andrea, who's like the stable one in our family, would just cry herself to sleep every night. And I was thinking to myself, this seems right. Like, you know, Every husband loves to see their wife cry. So I was like, let's just move a place where you're going to cry more. No. And I tell you what, we had just purchased a house a few years before. It was like our dream house. I've shared about this before. And we used it for good things. We used it for God. We hosted every family party there. We would invite anybody who needed a place to stay in one of our spare bedrooms. I led a college ministry on Tuesday nights with a whole bunch of people. And every night after college ministry, we invited everybody over to our house for like a house party. The police were called like three times. I was like, hello, police, you're here in the name of Jesus. Um, We would invite any college guy who wanted to stay over to spend the night at our house and go with me to a 6 a.m. Bible study the next day. And every week, like over 20 guys were sleeping on our floor. And so I'm like, God, why would you ask me to get rid of all of this? Like the thing I know can work for this mystery. I just don't feel ready. So as we were house hunting, I was like, I don't feel ready to sell my house. I'm not there emotionally. God, you're gonna have to do it. Dangerous prayer, a prayer of surrender. I kid you not, while we are here in Portland, I get a message from someone I didn't know at the time. She said, hi, my name is Selena. You don't know me, but I'm a real estate broker. I heard you preach at our home church a few weeks ago that you're moving to Portland, and I know you don't know me, but I have buyers looking in your neighborhood, and I think I have a buyer for your house. And I was like, no. And she said, when you guys get home? I said, we get home on Saturday. So we showed our house on Sunday, and we had a full price offer on Monday. I was like, okay, Lord, that's subtle. So first I was asking the question, are we ready? And you might be asking that right now. There's a second question, one of desire. I was like, do I even want to do this? Do I want to do this? And oftentimes the answer felt like no. I've shared this uh, sometime as well, that right before we moved to Portland, I got cold feet and I decided that I was going to go job hunting elsewhere. And I actually applied for and got offered a dream job in a city that Andrea and I had always wanted to move to, Washington, D.C. And so we went up there to kind of tour. Like we'd already like been on vision trips out here and I was trying to wiggle out of this. And while we were there, they were like, 
there's this beautiful college ministry. There's hundreds and hundreds of college students that meet weekly. You'll preach to them and lead them and give them vision. And I was like, I got this. And they go, you got to come see it. Tonight we have a guest speaker. I was like, great. And they're like, where's he from? I was like, where's he from? And they're like, Portland, Oregon. And I was like, uh-oh. And so I go in, and the guest speaker was a man by the name of Kevin Palau, who has a long history of ministry in this city. And the whole time, for a solid hour, he preached about following Jesus no matter what, and about the vibrant ministry that was happening in Portland, and how God was working. And he just kept saying, I just feel like there's someone in this room that God is telling you to move, and you just need to move. And I'm like, knock it off, Kevin! But I knew where God was calling. But did I always want to? No. But Jesus began to show me I had freedom even from my own temporary desires when I rooted my life in him. Ask another wrong question. Is it going to be fulfilling? Like, I was deeply personally fulfilled in my work, in my old job. And uh, I just really began to wonder, like, am I going to love it? Like, is it going to hit that fulfillment spot in me? And God began to teach me a lot about my generation, that we don't really struggle as much with performance anxiety. We generally have an unjustified sense of confidence. Uh, what we tend to struggle with is fulfillment anxiety. Fulfillment anxiety. We get very anxious over whether or not we're fulfilled in every moment. And perhaps it's because of Instagram and social media and comparing ourselves to everyone living their best life now. And I just thought, man, I don't really know how to get ahead in my career out there like I do here. And God said, you're asking all the wrong questions. This week I was reading in my devotion a story about a man named Gideon. Perhaps you've heard about him. It's a great story. If you haven't studied it this week, I encourage you. But Gideon was a man who um, God met while he was hiding from the bad guys in a wine press. And in the midst of this dark, lonely place, God speaks a new identity to him. And he says, Gideon, you mighty man of God. And Gideon's reaction is almost like, you've got the wrong person. But see, God saw Gideon's identity in a different way than Gideon did. Because God saw his identity, not through what Gideon already possessed, but by what God was going to do through him. He said, Gideon, you mighty man of God. And he began to give him a mission and a calling. And in that moment, if you've ever felt not ready, not wanting to, or not seeing the fulfillment. Gideon knows how you feel. And yet God rose him up. So many times we like meeting stories in moments like that. Like if you just say yes to Jesus, everything will go great. But for Gideon, the opposite was true. Things started falling apart. He called an army to go into battle. And one by one, God took thousands of people and narrowed them down to a small, measly 300. Why? So that if victory happened, God is the only one who would get the glory. And that's exactly what happened. Through God, Gideon won the day. And that's where we get this old preacher saying that says, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. So I dealt with all these wrong questions. Are we ready? Do we want to? Is this fulfilling? Wrong questions. It reminds me of my very third Sunday at Spring of Life Church. We opened our doors in July of 2017. Up until that moment, we were eight people at a coffee shop in South Portland, and we had no idea. Like when we opened the doors to the Bishop House, who in the world is gonna come in here? Maybe nobody and we'll be so depressed. Maybe 10 people and we'll be super excited. Man, we had dozens and dozens and dozens of people, over 100 first-time guests in that first month alone. It was everything we were hoping for, everything we were dreaming for. But what happens when your dream comes true and it doesn't feel the way you expected it to. That's what I was going through on my third week. 
I was standing downstairs in the parking lot looking up at this building. There's a big mural on the wall. And I was still asking the wrong questions. I even started to ask the question, why am I going up there today? It's harder than I thought it was going to be. It's more pressure than I thought it was going to be. And it's just not as fulfilling like I thought it was going to be. And the Holy Spirit in gentleness and kindness started to ask the question that I want us to ask today. He began to say, Aaron, did I ever ask you if you wanted to? And I thought back to my story, no. He said, what did I ask you? And I thought back to the defining moment when we said yes to Portland. And I remembered, I said, you asked me if I loved you. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, has that answer changed? I said, no, I love you. And he goes, then get up there and do your job. Not because you love it yet, but because you love me and I love that. It was a game changer for me. And today, we're going to see that same moment in the life of a man by the name of Peter. As your pastor, as your discipler, as a person who gets to walk in this journey with you, I'm not here to cast a vision and convince you or try to inspire you to this cause so that I can have your gifts and talents in the right spot on the bus. Today, more than anything, I want us to approach Jesus and ask the questions that he would have us organize our lives around. And together, I believe if we do that, incredible things can happen. If you have your scriptures, open to John 21. In just a moment, we'll pick up an incredible life-altering story. We don't have the time to deeply dive into this, but I hope, I hope you will take some time today and this week to go through this scripture. It's so gorgeous and powerful. But really, it comes down to two characters that we're going to see. Jesus, the Son of God, the author of time, Emmanuel, and a man by the name of Peter. Now, throughout the scriptures, the disciples are notorious for asking the wrong questions. In fact, nine times in the scriptures, the disciples are recorded asking something like this. Hey, Jesus, which of us do you like better? As the oldest of five boys, I'm very familiar with questions like that. Um, I'm the favorite. Let it be known. Um, Peter never really asked that question because he just always assumed it was him. We can just see that Peter was always the one who felt it was his place to speak up. He was never waiting on his turn. Peter made it his turn. Peter was always at the front of the line. And the night before Jesus gave his life for our sins, Peter made this promise that he would never, no, never, no, never turn his back on Jesus. The great irony and tragedy in this story we know is that as Christ was being captured in the middle of the night, betrayed by a friend, whipped and beaten for our sins, arms stretched out and murdered on a cross, that one of his closest friends named Peter would deny even knowing him three times. Deep, horrific, intentional betrayal. We pick up an awkward story of these two coming face to face again. What does restoration look like? Is it even possible? We're about to see it all. So at this moment, Jesus has not only given his life, but he's risen again from the dead, and he's appeared to the disciples on two other occasions. This is so shocking to me. I mean, you are looking at a person you know died, and now he is alive again. He has conquered the grave. He has risen. You can put your fingers in the nail print of his hand twice. And yet something in Peter, this distance, maybe the baggage of his betrayal, kept him away. 
and he goes back to his old life, not as a fisher of men, but just as a fish, fisherman. In John 21, we see what happens. After a night of fishing, Jesus approaches them. In verse 4, the Bible says this, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know yet that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred years off. So Peter swims to shore. Jesus makes this wonderful breakfast of fish. And then in 15, the tension of the moment arrives. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all of these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, so I wonder if the first time Jesus asked Peter this deep, piercing, public question, do you love me? Maybe Peter saw it as the moment when he could recapture the attention of Jesus and make good on this promise. I just wonder, if I'm Peter, I'm like overcompensating in this moment and hoping the emotion and energy I give to my answer will wipe away the past somehow. And I can just imagine the deflate and the insecurity and the feeling of transparency Peter must have been feeling when Jesus asked that second question. And just imagine how he felt with verse 17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Because truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying that, he said to him, follow me. There's so much to understand in this text, so let's pray and ask God to help us. Jesus, we thank you for your words, for your life, for this message. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. I want to point out a few things. I believe in this text, we see the source of Jesus' love resulting in three key things in the life of a true believer. I think in this passage, we are going to see the restoration that comes from the love of Jesus. We are going to see the identity that comes from the love of Jesus. And we are going to see the mission that comes from the love of Jesus. And I think we get in trouble when we try to separate one from the pack.
I believe that restoration, identity, and mission were always meant to work hand in hand. But if we're really going to understand this text before we unpack those three, we've got to understand some context. When Jesus said love, how did Peter understand him? What was the framework for this concept and idea? Because you and I might hear love differently, right? Like sometimes you might have people in your life where love is the force that they try to use to manipulate and control you and make you feel guilty. For some people, love means uh, a sense of affection and joy that you feel when you're together. For some people, love just might be like trying to send a birthday card once a year, if you remember. What did Jesus mean when he said love? We'll allow him to define it himself. In Matthew 22, 37, we see Jesus talking about love. He gave a new commandment, the greatest one. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Jesus was speaking to a group of people who were used to appeasing God by doing the right thing at the right time, being seen at the right place with the right people, by establishing the sense of religion and rule keeping that through my own efforts and achievements, I can make God happy. I can get on his good side. And if I get on his good side, I might get what I want out of this whole deal. I might escape hell. I might accomplish heaven. And Jesus said, there's something different altogether. I'm not talking about a system that you can work. I'm talking about something in the core of your being, a love. Love the Lord your God with everything. And from this, we really learn. Jesus is talking about how to love God on God's terms, not on our terms. John 5, 20 says this. Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. And this scripture from Jesus shows that love is the power and start of a glorious new life. Peter would also understand some statements from Jesus in John 12, 25, where Jesus looks at a crowd of people and he said, whoever loves his life in this world, this broken kingdom, this temporary place that's passing away, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here we see that love is the basis of an entirely new life, that it's the love of God and its purpose was never to come and make bad people just a little bit better, but to point people who are dead and lost in their sins to a new life and an unbroken, undying, unfading kingdom, that Jesus' love was this new starting point. And by grabbing onto the love of Christ, you could grab onto a new hope. You see, all of our lives, according to Jesus, will be filled with both glory and grief. Both glory and grief. And the love of God gives us the opportunity to choose which goes where. See, there are so many people that because of the love of Jesus will choose a little bit of grief in this temporary world because they understand every grief in this temporary world is temporary to achieve a glory in eternity that will never fade. Because these are people who realize that if you don't choose that, the alternative will be true. You can try to grab glory in this little world, but everything here is temporary. And you might sacrifice and bear an eternity filled with grief. Jesus says, because of God's love, because of God's love, your glory can be eternal. Peter would certainly know what the scriptures taught 
when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you and I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, because I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And look what he writes. Because your love is better than my life, my lips will glorify you. Jesus was talking about a love that you feel and that's better than any other that rewrites your life. When Peter started asking the right question in this moment, his life changed forever. It was no longer about trying to impress Jesus and speak up in the right moment and get noticed by the right people. It was no longer about activity. It was about something else altogether. Restoration, identity, and mission. Let's look at those briefly in our few moments left together. Why is restoration so beautiful? I think every one of us is aware of what brokenness looks like in this old world. I think every one of us is aware of what brokenness feels like. In a world filled with broken people who do broken things, we have souls crying out for restoration. And we see that was always the mission and plan of God. Isn't it so beautiful to know that Jesus meets broken people exactly where you are, but he never intends to leave you there? That his vision for your life is complete healing. That he believes in you more than you believe in you. That he left heaven and came to earth to pursue you so that you might know what full life looks like. And Peter's life changed when he began to understand what restoration looks like. Not that he climbed his way back to Jesus, but that there was Jesus standing on the beach coming for him. What was the moment? What was the moment when you realized Jesus was pursuing you for restoration? Peter would go on to write in his epistle this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. No longer was he like one of those disciples saying, Where, where's my glory, my temporary glory on this earth? He began to understand that a little grief now leads to eternal glory and a kingdom that will last forever. And when he understood the real question, the answer became easy. It became easy. That's the destiny of everyone who really understands the love of God. And sometimes we plant churches and we do ministries and all we talk about is restoration. Gorgeous though it is, it doesn't end there. If all we do is talk about where you go after you leave this planet, we miss the source of your abundant life, which comes from understanding the other two principles. The second thing that we see is the love of Christ gives us the true basis for our identity. I'm going to do ministry for 10 years. I started the week after I got back from my honeymoon. So marriage and mission, all at the same time. Super easy. Um, and since I've been in ministry, I've had the privilege of having hundreds of one-on-one -on -one conversations where people who are, I mean, just I find them so deeply meaningful and valuable who have poured open their hearts to me and shared with me the questions they're really asking every day. And if I were just to like uh, bring all of these together and sum it up, what is one of, like, top three questions? Like, always in the list of top three is this. What is my true worth? Why do I matter? Why am I meaningful? 
Most of the time, as we try to answer this question in a broken world, we will find broken answers. We compare ourselves, we compete, or we go the other way and we give up. Broken people looking in a cracked mirror that the world gives us as our reflection, we define ourselves on our enemy's terms. We shouldn't be surprised when we come up short. When we look to Jesus, we see a different picture. Rather than seeing ourselves in the reflection of this broken world mirror, we see ourselves reflected in the eyes of the King of glory, the very author of time, the one who spoke and the cosmos came to be, the one who invented the tiniest cell and the great expanse of the ocean, and the one who made you and me in his image, the one who numbers the hair on our head, the one who knew us in the midst of our deepest shame, and stretch out his arms for us anyway. The one who paid for the anger of God on our behalf so that he who knew no sin would become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's that Savior, that Jesus, who shows us what we're worth. We are not defined by who we love. We live in a culture where we talk about this all the time. People give themselves labels and identities based on who they love. And who you love is important. But your identity is not based on who you love. Rather, your identity and worth is based on who loves you. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Precious prized creation. In Jesus, you will know your real identity. So we're going to spend time doing in the 9 a.m. services, unpacking what that looks like in your individual life. In order to really understand the importance of identity, you need to know who you were. I meet people all the time who are like, yep, I've always been saved. I've always been pretty Christian. I've always been a good person. And the only problem with that is it's a lie. It's just not true. The Bible teaches a clear picture that before you came to know Jesus, you weren't just like a little bit naughty. You were all the way bad, not just in your deeds, but in your existence. The Bible says in Romans 5.10, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Isn't that crazy? That before you know Jesus, there is this tension in regards to your existence. You are both an enemy of God, worthy of punishment, and longed for and loved by God. What is the reconciliation? What is the bridge? The cross is the bridge. And Jesus is the center of that hope. To understand your identity, you've got to understand who you were so you can appreciate now who you are. And in our text today, we saw who you can be once you know Jesus. No longer a stranger or even a close friend, an acquaintance, a co-worker. Look what Jesus says, John 21, 5, standing on the beach. He looked at those scoundrels and he said, children, children, 
I love my kids. I drove back from Cannon Beach yesterday an hour and 28 minutes. Why do I know every minute and second? Because one of my children screamed the entire ride back. And there was never a moment that my love diminished for them. Like the naughtier they are, the more I love them. Don't tell them that. I don't want them to test it. But it's true. The love that God lavishes on you is the center point of who you are. Of who you are. There's a third thing, mission. We get in real trouble when we treat mission as optional. It just never was. I'm not just telling you this as a church planter. Like, I could leave tomorrow and it would still be true. I would be doing you a disservice to your soul, to your source of abundant life if I try to separate it from you. Restoration, identity, and mission, they're braided together by Jesus. They always flow together. I think there's sometimes we have built churches and we've been afraid of the true call to discipleship without realizing its true potency. Some of you are like, I don't know, Aaron, prove it to me. Okay, I'm just going to read this Bible passage again. Listen to this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Question, do you love me? Answer, yes. Feed my sheep. Jesus is like, wait, just in case you missed it. Just in case you think like, oh, well, serving's not really for me. Or like, I'm too busy. I'm too tired. It's, my life is too crowded. I'm just not sure. I'd be too afraid. I would never be good at it. And by the way, it's a shocking percentage of people who call themselves Christians. A shocking percentage. Like, statistics will tell us that maybe, maybe 10% of people who call themselves Christians will share their faith with anybody this year. But let's take it back. Since we've unmade it, something that Jesus never made it. He said a second time, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Some of us are like, well, I, I just don't know if I'm worthy. I just don't know, like, if I'm in the right place. I just don't know if God could really use me. And Jesus is like, I know, I know you're so precious, you precious little children. Oh, my goodness. I just want to simplify it one last time. Do you love me? Yes. Ah. Feed my sheep. Restoration, identity, and mission. He always braided them together. And just like Gideon's story, it did not get neat and tidy for Peter from that moment on. You're like, it must have gone well. He's a best-selling author. He's included in the compilation of the best-selling Bible of, I mean, the best-selling book of all time. And he never saw a single earthly royalty. And Jesus made that so very clear in his next statements. Because if you could really describe what Jesus tells Peter next, it's this. He never says anything like, good, 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 good. We're back on great terms now. He's like, okay, great. Now that we've covered that. Because Jesus believed his love was so abundantly enough. Like if you could recognize that treasure, everything else would pale in comparison. And then Jesus essentially goes on to say this, Peter, you are going to be crucified 
for your obedience. You are going to be tortured and killed for your obedience. And look, as Peter acknowledged this in the verse we read a moment ago in 1 Peter 5, where he talks about temporary grief and eternal glory, Peter made the choice of where he was going to place his grief. My grief will be now because it won't last long. There may be things I lose in my life. I might lose opportunity. I might lose earthly fulfillment. I might lose something here, but only for a little while because all of my grief and all of my burdens and all of my shame, though they're real, they have an expiration date because I believe and I've seen and I've tasted through the love of God, an everlasting, all-consuming, all-worth-it glory. And it all comes back to a question. Not even do you want that. Do you love me? We know from church history that Peter would experience grief. His wife would be crucified in front of him. I can't imagine. Peter himself would be crucified upside down. And the problem is, as we've turned stories like this into heroes of our faith, when the New Testament says, this is just normal. And if you don't see this normal then you've just never deeply, fully acknowledged how good this calling is, how rich this love is. Some of you are like, Aaron, this is heavy stuff. I know, you and me both. Like, we're reading this together. But I'm telling you, this is not my message but I can't redefine discipleship from what Jesus has given us. And I don't want to lead a church that asks the wrong questions. I don't want to take a cop out. I don't want to make it more like simple or palatable. I mean, when it comes down to it, this is very simple stuff, just not easy. In fact, if we're going to live like this, it's going to take a real encounter with God himself. It's going to take Jesus. And that was the promise all along. You know what? This is also a risky message because my invitation to you is very simple. It's not like, believe this message and then do everything Aaron asks. What happens if you start encountering Jesus and he calls you somewhere else? You know what I will experience? Temporary grief. Be sad. But here's the gorgeous thing about Jesus. Is he steers us away from a kingdom based in scarcity. You will never have enough here. And that's why people clamor and climb and crawl and compete and get greedy and steal and cheat. Because this is a kingdom of scarcity. But when your home is heaven, you're living under the banner of abundance. There's not just enough. There's more than enough. There's more than enough. So it's a dangerous message. You may not do what I hope you do. Guess what? That's okay. What I want more than anything is for you to encounter Jesus and allow him this week to ask you that question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? John 25, 12, 25. Whoever loses, sorry, whoever loves his life in this world will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it forever. Where are we today, church? I'm gonna ask for our musicians to come forward and just to have a moment to ponder this and think about this today. It's such a gift to be here with you. It's such a gift to be your pastor and know that I would never bring something to you that I'm not working through in myself. I just came to the realization that I don't want to work through it alone. I want to do it with friends and people that I care about and people that I love. That's why it's been such an honor that you're taking this journey. Today is the question of questions. 
Peter had to hear it three times. Maybe you need it more, maybe less. The answer is never easy, but the question is simple. When it comes to you and Jesus, do you love him? What does that look like? As we reflect on this message, I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Would you let your spirit speak to our hearts today? Father, there's so many times I've tried to will myself to start at the wrong point, to be part of ministry because I felt like I should, operating out of obligation, sometimes even operating out of attention, wanting to be seen for participating. God, thank you for rebuking me. Thank you for rebuking us. Let us never sign up for life filled with activity, but rather driven by our gospel identity, who we are in you. I just believe there's people in this room that need a fresh reminder of their worth as it's defined by what you say. Help us to understand that, God. Father, allow us, just like in any relationship where the L word comes up, let us feel nervous, let us count the cost, but lead us to you. In just a moment, I'm going to finish the prayer and we've set up the elements of communion in the lobby at the family table. And I invite anyone who's a believer in Christ to join us in remembrance of the work of the Lord. As we take the bread, we remember his body that was broken, that we might be healed. As we dip into the juice, we remember we have been baptized into this faith by being cleansed in the blood of Christ that washes us as clean as snow. And today we celebrate that word together. I'm gonna to pray for us and as the spirit leads, we'll celebrate in worship and singing and we'll get up and take the elements of communion together. Jesus, we thank you and love you. You're doing a work here, it's your work. It belongs to you. We give ourselves to you. Jesus, in a few short decades, we're gonna see you face to face. And we long for that day. And until then, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.